You are listening to National Security Law Today. Hey, listeners, and welcome back to National Security Law Today. Last week, we were joined by friend of the cast, Judge Jamie Baker, for a deep dive on the ongoing conflict between Israel and Hamas. This week, we're airing the second part of that conversation, but going beyond the Middle East to discuss AI ethics within the practice of law, different ways in which AI will influence our digital landscape ahead of the U.S. presidential election, as well as other national security-related news. As always, thanks for tuning in, and here's Elisa. Now, you have given a lot of thought to AI over the years, and you also given a lot of thought to ethics. So I thought of you this past couple of weeks when I noticed that Florida Bar has issued guidance on AI usage for lawyers. And it came in the form of an advisory non-binding ethics opinion. And for those of you who want to take a look at this, I actually thought I was pretty thoughtful, but you know, maybe Jamie's going to disabuse me of that. It is opinion number 24-1. Um, we can hyperlink it in the notes to the cast. It's talking about large language models. They're in increasing use, and they're discussing what the hazards are for lawyers. And I wonder what you think the hazards are, obviously, for lawyers, but if there are any that are particularly fraught for lawyers in the national security space who may be thinking about uh, incorporating AI into their practice. I mean, we can go over some of the things that they raise, but let me get your sort of initial reaction. You've probably heard me say this before, and I continue to believe it, which is, in my view, national security practitioners should use all the tools available to them to solve national security problems and challenges. One of those tools is AI. The key is to use it wisely and well, but not to forgo a potential tool and here we're talking about a potential tool that can help lawyers. There's no question the United States should use AI for intelligence purposes, for defense purposes, and so on. The question is directed towards lawyers. Should lawyers use AI? And, and the answer is they already do. If they use Westlaw and LexisNexis and spell check while drafting things, they're using some form of what some people may refer to as AI. What we're really talking about, or what the Florida opinion is getting at, is the use of generative AI, which is AI is that constellation of technologies that helps you derive meaning from data and so on. But generative AI uses large language models and some other methodologies, but that's that's the main one right now that everybody's a focus on to generate new content. New content could be research memo, new content could be a video, a deep fake for perhaps that sort of thing. And we debate this in academia as well, right? Professors are very nervous as our universities that their students are gonna use generative AI to generate their term papers. My approach to that, I'm teaching in a law school and a public policy school, so at the graduate level. So my response to that, and different professors have different views, is my response is students should use every tool available to them to address the problem presented, but they should do so with transparency. So I require them to indicate whether they used AI in the preparation of their memo. And it's a trick because 
they better say yes, because if they've used spell check, they're using some version of an AI application, right? And a lot of generative AI is like a big it's a little sneaky. That's a little a sneaky. Big, yeah, big, big <laughs> version of spell check, right? It's spell check using all of the data you've scraped from the internet to predict what the next word or image or whatever should be or look like. So where lawyers are getting in trouble, or some lawyers are getting in trouble, is they're not checking their work. And who does that, right? They're relying on the generative AI and then submitting it to a court or submitting it to a client or, do, or submitting it to their professor. And they haven't gone through to, to check to see whether the AI is hallucinating. And that's, that's the term that's been given to AI's propensity to make stuff up. And it does. Let's add to that, make stuff up and make it sound very convincing. Usually, but not always. <laughs> but you're right. It, it, you can fall for it, right? It makes up cases, sure. for example. And that's what's gotten a few people in trouble. But that's just nuts, right? That's like who submits a memo or paper without reading it themselves and editing it? Well, somebody did because we have Mata versus Avianca, which we can put in the notes. Wounds, though. This is this tells <laughs> the basic test of competence and diligence, whether it's generative <laughs> AI or anything else. So I guess we're getting a bit sidetracked here, but here's what I, I think the first step that any lawyer should engage in when they're using AI in the practice of law, not informing clients who are using AI in the practice of national security, but when we're using AI to practice law, we should ask ourselves the threshold question, what is the AI application good at, better than humans at, what is the AI application not as good at humans at? And what are humans better at when augmented by AI applications? And if we start with that, there's certain things. I have a list that I, I start my classes on this. I make the students go through and figure out, answer those three questions. And there are things that AI is better than humans at, but there's virtually nothing that AI is better than humans at that doesn't involve some form of human machine teaming and human augmentation. That's what we should be looking at. But think about all the ways you can use AI effectively as a lawyer for discovery, for document review, for better or for worse, for assessing which jurors you might want on a jury, how courts might rule. I'm waiting for that application that assesses all of my opinions and then makes a prediction, which is what AI often does, makes a prediction about how Judge Baker will decide a particular case based on the study of all my prior opinions, which most people would fall asleep reading, uh, <laughs> and the AI does not, right? So the AI can read all my prior opinions and make a judgment, a prediction about how I might rule on the next Fourth Amendment case. Right. But the lawyer should look at that and assess it and say, well, how does that apply to the facts that I have? So that's a that's a probably a long winded answer to get back to that excellent part <laughs> of our ethics opinion. It's an excellent opinion. It's written in plain language and it identifies for private practice lawyers four key issues, which is don't lose sight of the fact that you need to keep client information confidential. And if you're using a generative AI application, let's pick a random one, ChatGPT4, for example, and you're typing in the client's information, maybe not their name, but their fact pattern, 
you may re be revealing client confidential information, which right. the chat GPT application will then absorb and use in its next it, and put into its database and parameters as it continues along. And, and it says that, folks, when you sign up for it, it tells you it's going to do that. So listen to the judge. So that's that's a trap, right? Most competent lawyers sort of get the thing about don't turn in the memo without reading it with the fake cases in it. But some lawyers may not realize that their data, that the things they're typing in is getting reused and maybe eliminating waiving or perhaps even disclosing client confidences. Mm. So the waiver part is very important. That's how I would challenge it. I wouldn't say I can identify it, but I, I might say you waived client confidentiality by disclosing it to a third party. That'll be litigated at some point. By the way, that wasn't in the memo. And I think that should have been in the Florida Bar memo, because I think that's the more likely scenario is the allegation of waiver. There's restrictions on improper billing, but I think that's not something national security practitioners will need to worry about. But the concern that the Florida ethics memo is addressing is there's rules about not billing individual clients for overhead that a law firm needs. And if you're so you can't bill the client for the subscription to the chat GPT, you can only bill the client for the work you're performing for the client. So that's a little bit inside baseball for a national security audience. And there's restrictions on lawyer advertising. And then of course, there's the one everybody's focused on, which is don't do dumb stuff with the generative AI, like submit memos without reading. <laughs> right, review, they had that whole section on review it, right? Actually um, review it means go back and look at the case, see if it says what the generative AI claims it says. Or if it even exists, I figure out what the data set is that the generative AI has been trained on. And what is the cutoff year? So ChatGPT3 had a cutoff a year. So then I bring it to class and I ask the students questions that are necessarily occurring after the cutoff year. So it cannot possibly know the correct answer, predict the correct answer, not know, but predict the correct answer to something that occurred after its database, its training database was severed. And it provides very convincing answers. I get it, but you better know what you're using and how you're using it. And that's just simply required by the competence and diligence rules, among other things. So let me make a couple of additional observations. One, I know everybody is very eager to read the Chief Justice's end of year report each year. Interestingly, he has chosen this year, the 2023 year end report on the federal judiciary focuses on artificial intelligence. So interesting that uh, the issues are getting at least the attention of the Chief Justice. And I happen to know that federal courts are taking a deep look at AI now as well, and how it will impact the practice of law and the practice before courts. That's an area that I've done a fair bit of work in with my distinguished colleague, Lori Hobart. Last point, national security lawyers need to know AI. It's no longer an emerging technology. It is an everyday technology that national security practitioners should be using. National security policymakers, national security intel people, national security military commanders. It is one of the essential tools that is in the national security toolkit.
Therefore, lawyers who advise those policymakers, advise those commanders, advise those intel analysts and operators must know artificial intelligence. And I'm living proof that a normal person, and indeed someone who doesn't write code, doesn't understand code, and couldn't spell AI when I entered this field, can learn enough about it to use it wisely and well. And by the way, one of the things generative AI is useful at is creating code and eliminating some of the mundane steps. And it's mm-hmm. great at disinformation. The Russians know that. The Chinese know that. Oh, sure. So it has a lot of uses and it has a lot of benefits. And one of the interesting things about AI is you never give the same presentation twice. But a competent and diligent national security lawyer will be fully conversant in the executive order on AI from October 30th, which has many components, not all, many components that are national security directed. For example, section 4.2, which deals with knowing about who's using large language models to generate certain things, especially foreign actors on US platforms. Section 10 generally is about the US government becoming AI conversant with things like chief AI officers for every agency and AI talent, how to recruit and retain AI talent. So that's. And I don't remember, did they talk about red teams in that? Yeah. I'm Uh, trying to remember where I got that. It must have been that one. Okay. And you want to quickly say what those are, because it seems to me like they're going to be the the, potentially the rock stars or a a significant help. This turns us to the other thing that national security lawyers should be reading, and that's the EU AI Act. The EU Act, it hasn't been finally approved yet, but it's about to be finally approved and it will come into force in two years' time. Certain segments of it will come in force before that, some as soon as six months' time from now. One of the, a couple of the things they have in the act is a requirement to have AI sandboxes and AI validation by independent parties. So that could be a red team. A red team is someone you come in and they say, do we have the analysis right? Um, or does this AI application work as we say that it works or as we intend? So that's what a red team does. They they check to make sure the blue team has actually got it right. It's in the EU Act. It's in the executive order as well. It's, does this thing actually do what, what we intended to do? And the AI sandbox, the idea with an AI sandbox is you allow the AI application to go into the real world and operate, but it's a sandbox because you first have indicated what the parameters are, which will keep the AI from getting outside of the sandbox and being used in a way that's not intended. The AI Act is extremely long. Well, I mean, if you're trying to grow in this space, you really ought to read some of these things. You know, if you do it at the gym, fine, but do it. Yeah. I mean, I don't think you're a competent and diligent national security lawyer. Even if you do dog law, you should know what these two documents state and then figure out how to interact with them and take some of the principles and apply them elsewhere. By the way- Is uh, there dog law? Is there dog law? Because I really like dogs. So I could see that uh-huh. as a nice practice area. Yeah. The, uh, a lot of the EO steps in the October 30th order, a lot of them say, do something within 90 days, do something within 270 days, do something within 365 days. 
they're on track so far, right? We went back to check and see mm -hmm. are the 90 day things actually being implemented. But if I'm a lawyer at a national security agency, I'm going to make sure that I'm involved in my agency's implementation of the thing that's due 270 days from the date of the order or 365 right. days from the day of the order. Rather than sit in my office and wonder why I haven't been consulted, I will go find out where that work is being done and make sure I'm the person in the room. All right. So we're staring down the barrel of another presidential election, and that inevitably means foreign influence, which is happening even as we sit here. This appears to me, I mean, I'm speaking in the main here, not about our elevated listeners who are the cognoscenti, of course, of the entire country, but it seems to me that this is something that Americans have decided they're willing to accept in lieu of ever really pausing to consider the source of messages that they see on social media. And indeed, studies show that people will repeat false messages as long as it aligns with their political views. So Scientific American has an article that reports on a new study where researchers project that Based on prior studies of cyber and automated algorithm attacks, AI will help spread toxic content across social media platforms on a near daily basis. I would say certainly on a daily basis during 2024. And the authors of the study predict that this could affect election results, not just in the United States, but in more than 50 countries holding elections this year from India to the United States. No sooner did we see this than we learned from Microsoft through Reuters, actually, that Microsoft had discovered hackers from China, Russia, and Iran who were using AI tools to engage in basically target practice using large language models. What can the federal government do about this? Did you, I don't know if you saw this, but I had a visceral reaction to this, like, we're going to wait till this thing consumes us? What is? What are? What are our options here? What are your thoughts on this? Well, unfortunately for your audience, I have more than one thought, and it would require seven hours of podcasts, but we'll make this a brief response <laughs> to prove it can be done. So that's section 4.2 of the executive order, which is notification to the government that someone's using a large language model, let's say at Microsoft, to figure out how to target or disseminate disinformation. So that's response element one. Response element two is section 4.5 of the order is addressed to reducing the risks posed by synthetic content, meaning made up stuff, deep fakes and other stuff. That is probably among the most critical elements of what we have to do to address the peril of AI. We have promise and peril, and this is the peril side. And this is what steps can be taken to verify the accuracy of information. And there are methodologies, but the fact that there are methodologies doesn't mean social media companies will employ them or feel obliged to employ them. First, we need them. So the, the executive order yeah. places emphasis on developing methodologies that can be used to verify either after the fact or be embedded in information at the time of its creation to mm. verify its accuracy. It all comes back to, though, are you willing to accept this information? The American public seems quite eager to do so. I would say I have two basic start points on information, but I have the Lincoln Rule and the Moynihan Rule. And the Lincoln Rule is James Russell Lowell said of Lincoln that he was a great lawyer because he could see both sides of every issue. 
And that is a great lawyer, because if you don't see both sides, you won't know how to articulate the argument against the position or mitigate or whatever. So I always ask, okay, that's interesting. What's the other side? What's the argument on the other side? And if you don't even ask that, you're going to take the disinformation hook, line, and sinker. So that's the Lincoln rule. Moynihan rule is, remember, he famously said on or about 2003, everyone is entitled to their own opinion, but not their own facts. So I ask, or I ask my students, what is it? Is it a fact? Is it an inference? Is it a judgment? Is it an opinion? What is it you are looking at and responding to? And oftentimes we don't do that. We just accept something and elevate it to the status of fact, when in reality it is an opinion or it's an inference, a judgment. It could be a very informed judgment, but it's still a judgment. It's not a fact. As lawyers, we have a special duty as public citizens, which comes from the model rules of professional responsibility, I might note, as public citizens trained in the law, we have a special duty to make sure we are distinguishing between what is fact, what is judgment, what is inference. That is part of candor to a court. That's part of what it means to be a lawyer in a democracy. Yeah, I don't know that that's reaching the average American. I looked at the hearings on the Hill and they were really focused on the uh, impact of social media on children and the developing brain. And there appeared to be cohesion in what is otherwise a constantly squabbling Congress. But I also remember that social media platforms spent, I think in 2022, $61 million in lobbying politicians. And I just, I don't know, it's going to be interesting to see what happens, but I think um, AI may push some results in this space. I want to sort of switch topics here because this is a national security podcast. You know, we're looking at Putin right now and his behavior, including his, some of the things that he's been saying lately, which are increasingly alarming. And Russia's made some advances in Ukraine in the last 48 hours that are upsetting at the very least. It's horrifying. But Alexei Navalny, who presented an alternative to Putin in terms of being someone who wanted to govern Russia, you know, he was poisoned and he's died now in prison. And he was, you know, basically at a polar prison. You know, he was sent off to like Siberia or some awful place. We have a journalist who interviewed him on condition because Putin sets the rules, right, that um, it not be edited. And uh, he broadcast it. And then after this death of Navalny, Tucker Carlson commented that sometimes being a leader means you have to kill people, apparently in response to hearing that Navalny has died, all while Congress is squabbling over Ukraine aid. This struck me as a bigger moment than I think any of us can imagine right now. I just wonder how you reacted to this is a man who survived poisoning who was joking 24 hours before he was dead. How, how did you think about this? First, it's clear that Navalny was a person of great courage going back to Russia, knowing that in all likelihood, at best, he would be imprisoned. And this is a time that requires courage. It requires moral courage. And if you're Ukrainian, it requires physical courage as well. And if you are a member of the U.S. Congress, it requires moral courage to do the right thing, to put principle before position, patriotism before power. And this is the time to do so. 
in my view, Ukraine is the front line of freedom. We are fortunate that Ukraine is seeking to fight the fight that they're fighting. And we cannot lose sight of the fact that Ukraine's fight for freedom is directly correlated with U.S. security and the security of NATO. We should not lose the opportunity to state so every chance we get. It, it is remarkable to me that anybody would need further indication that Putin is an autocrat and will not stop until he stopped than the death of Navalny. And it reminds us of the horror in Ukraine and the necessity that we continue to support Ukraine with weapons, support Ukraine with information, and support Ukraine as it pivots to recovery. If you want, I can go through the arguments for why it's all in U.S. national security interests, but it hinges in part on what you believe deterrence consists of. And my reading of history, my reading of the lessons of Munich, my reading of the lessons of Milosevic in the Balkans, is dictators don't stop until they're stopped. Autocrats don't stop until they're stopped. If Putin is not stopped in Ukraine, then I would be very worried about Georgia. Russia already occupies 20% of the country. I'd be very worried about Moldova. Russia already occupies 20% of the country. The Baltic states, and of course, Poland, Slovakia, et cetera. In my view, and this is a judgment going back to what we were just talking about, this is not a fact. It is a judgment that if Putin is not stopped in Ukraine by the courage of the Ukrainian people, then we will need to stop them somewhere else. So it is in U.S. interest that he be stopped in Ukraine. And of course, we know that China is watching with respect to Taiwan and our allies are watching. Is the United States a country that stands by its friends and finishes the job or is the United States an unreliable partner and therefore not to be relied on in the future? Okay, I knew you had some thoughts on that. And I know that you've done a lot of work and thought on Ukraine over the last year. I, I want to end on a little slightly what might be perceived as a positive note, which is that there's public source reporting that indicates that Iranian leaders may actually be listening to some of the things that Biden has said, and they apparently pulled out their IRGC commanders right after Biden publicly blamed Iran for the attack that killed three U.S. soldiers at the Iran-Syria border. How did you react to the idea that they reacted when the president said there would be consequences? Well, this gets back to the issue of deterrence. I would be careful to assess whether it's the words that led to the deterrence or the military action that led to the deterrence. I would lean toward the military action conclusion in both the actual manner in which the recent strikes by the United States and, and its coalition partners degraded the capability of the Houthis and the Iranian proxy actors in Syria and Iraq, but don't discount the willingness to use force as an element of deterrence as well, not just the methodology of using force, but the willingness to use force. And I think that's an important element of deterrence. And I would encourage the audience to consider how they view the concept of deterrence, because what is happening in Ukraine, what is happening in response to the Houthi attacks and the Iranian proxy attacks elsewhere 
it's all about deterrence and how you deter autocrats in their proxies. Yeah. And just to, to be clear, the public reporting is that this was before we ever did anything militarily that okay, allegedly I, I haven't there seen was that. A, yeah, that is what some of the reporting is. OK, so I'm glad you came in. It was fun to talk to you. And I'm glad you're willing to do this. And, you know, this isn't going to be the end. We're going to have the sequel in the future at some point. Thank you. And the reason I do it, if there's anyone still listening, the reason I do it is because, <laughs> of, the, because of the public servants who no doubt are listening. And you're one of them. But as I started this podcast, I said that this in my 40 years, not, not necessarily in the history of the United States, not that old. But in my 40 years, this is as challenging and complex a time as I have seen. And I'm very thankful and grateful to the people who serve in positions, in uh, national security positions, and lawyers who have to deal with the challenges of guiding policymakers and commanders in very difficult times with all the pressures that that entails. That takes moral courage, and it takes the sacrifice of time and energy and family time. And I am appreciative of that. And if there's anything I can say or do that might assist them, that's why I come on this podcast. Thank you. I really appreciate it. We appreciate our listeners as well. So thank you for listening to NSLT. Be sure to share this episode with a friend or a colleague and discuss the issues that we've discussed in a thoughtful way, making sure that you hear other people's opinions and thoughts. If you have feedback for us, please reach out to us on Twitter. We're not calling it X at ABA NATSEC, or you can email us at nationalsecurityatamericanbar.org. Our producer and writer is me, Elisa Poteet. I'm always here in my individual capacity. Our editor and my co-producer is Francis Berkham. My other co-producer is Holly McMahon, as well as the incredible members of the Standing Committee on Law and National Security, without whom this podcast would not be possible. We'll see you next time. The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association, and this recording should not be construed as representing ABA policy.